Welcome to The Vast Majority. I'm Jacobin Managing Editor Micah Utrecht. If you're like me, you were completely crushed by the results from the UK elections that were a pretty resounding defeat for the Labour Party and for Jeremy Corbyn. And there's no question that it was a crushing defeat. Nobody would deny that. But I also think that it's not quite accurate to say that the UK election was some kind of resounding defeat for socialism. I mean, the election was principally about Brexit, and Labour's stance on Brexit was certainly shot down, and we should talk about why it was shot down and you know what we can learn from that and mistakes that the Labour Party shouldn't make again, as well as other parties throughout Europe or in the United States. But Labour ran on a robust left economic policy platform that was very popular. And you can't say that those left economic policies were soundly rejected in this election if the election was not fundamentally about those policies. I think this is important to say because you've already seen some pundits in the United States, in the UK, and elsewhere say that election results in the UK show why we have to reject a leftward turn in parties like the Labour Party or in parties like the Democratic Party. And what that is fundamentally about, of course, is telling people we should not choose Bernie Sanders as the Democratic nominee for president. We certainly shouldn't elect him to be president. That will be a disaster that people will not go for what he's selling. And I think that that is fundamentally wrong. Not only do I believe on a moral and political level that that's wrong, but I think that on a practical political level, it's very wrong. And so I talked about this with David Broder. David is Jacobin's Europe editor. He wrote two articles since the UK election results came in. One on the night of the elections called I'm Crying, You're Crying, But Our Day Will Come. And another called Labor's Brexit Stance Defeated Corbynism Months Ago. I'll link to both of them in the show notes. He is also author of the forthcoming book, First They Took Rome, How the Populist Right Conquered Italy, which will be out next year from Verso Books. Okay, here's me and David Broder. David, hello. Hello. So you were out on the doors for labor in the two weeks before this election. Did you hear anything on the doors that made you think that the results that we ended up getting in this election uh did you did you see them coming in any way uh honestly I, I couldn't say i did when we were canvassing going door to door we had a lot of um former labor voters who we spoke to saying they'd never vote for corbyn um that they in particular i think the biggest issue that came up was that they thought our policy on brexit was a mess they wanted to get brexit done um, it has to be said, a lot of people who said they were lifelong Labour voters and wouldn't vote for us this time, actually our, our own data was that they hadn't been recent Labour voters, that they were lifelong Labour voters who stopped voting for us 20 years ago. And, you know, I think uh, going door to door, you know, you're you're meeting a lot more elderly people, a lot more people who are at home during the day. Uh, of course, this election took part in took place in December, which meant that when we come seeing during daylight hours, that meant it was like during the working day. So the fact that the people we're speaking speaking to were mostly uh, elderly and, and therefore much less likely to vote Labour anyway uh, made it hard to be sure that um, you know. We, I mean, in fact, we knew we weren't speaking to a representative sample, but nonetheless, um, I mean, speaking to people, you heard a lot of the same attack lines being pushed in the media. 
um, you know, calling Corbyn a, an IRA man, a terrorist, that kind of stuff. Um, but uh, even, I'd say, even among the people who voted for Corbyn in 2017, uh, the Brexit issue was really the thing that hurt us most because people didn't understand opposition. Right. So you've written about this since the election. Talk about the confusion around Labour's Brexit stance and what you thought the party should have done. Well, um, in the in the 2016 referendum, Labour, of course, campaigned for Remain. Uh, but as soon as the results were in, uh, we said we would respect and uphold the result, that we would follow through with Brexit. Um, a lot of centrists have been critical of Corbyn's own performance in the referendum campaign, uh, saying that he hadn't fought hard enough for uh, Remain. Uh, he famously said that he would only give the European Union uh, seven marks out of ten. Uh, but nonetheless, you know, we fought for Remain, we lost, and uh, in 2017, uh, the subsequent general election, we said we would uh, honour the result but oppose uh, the kind of deal that the Tories were working for. Um, without doubt, um, a lot of people did vote for us even then in because we were seen as less hard Brexit or perhaps even because they thought that we might push towards a more Remain position. But then what happened basically uh, over 2018 as Theresa May negotiated her specific Brexit deal with the EU um, was that our position came under intense pressure. Uh, a People's Vote campaign was set up in April 2018 with people like um, a lot of the circles around Tony Blair, uh, Liberal Democrats, figures from the right of the Labour Party, and also some small parts of the far left um, pushing for Labour to um, campaign for a second referendum, basically to overturn the first. Um, they made some headway, uh, in the September 2018 Labour conference, um, we said we wanted a general election and failing that, uh, a, a vote on, a public vote on Theresa May's deal. Uh, the TUC, the Trade Union Congress conference, had already, uh, earlier in September 2018, pushed for something similar. Then, basically, um, once the Tories themselves started tearing into Theresa May's deal, uh, she was weakened by the 2017 election and people like Boris Johnson obviously started contending for the leadership. So in early 2019, when she came back from Brussels with her deal, uh, the hard right of the Tories voted it down. That basically encouraged a lot of Labour people uh, and Liberals and so on also to think that Brexit as a whole was in danger or could have been stopped entirely. And then the pressure on the Labour leadership, uh, which never really wanted the second referendum, uh, intensified. Um, and in February 2017, uh, sorry, 2019, uh, there was a split, uh, which became the independent group in Parliament by some former Labour MPs, and uh, others on the right of the party threatened they might follow. And in February 2019, therefore, the Labour leadership uh, committed to having a second referendum on Brexit in which the options would be a Labour deal or remaining. So therefore, effectively saying, they were prepared to overturn the 2016 result. Uh, a lot of us opposed this at the time, and a lot of us uh, basically predicted exactly what happened, which was that people who'd voted for us in 2017, Labour leavers, more than a third of our voters, uh, particularly concentrated in northern ex-industrial seats, uh, basically, you know, we'd promised them we'd uphold the result. In the 2017 election, we were insistent that it was a lie to say we planned to overturn the result. 
And basically, we eventually admitted that that was indeed our position, and that was a disaster. Uh, almost all of the seats we lost on Thursday were uh, in England and Wales. Uh, I think 51 out of 54 were seats that had voted heavily to leave, and they were concentrated in former pit villages and former um, industrial areas in Midlands and northern England. So it seems like there's a, a couple of things to say about this. I mean, one, there's the fact that there was a Democratic vote for Brexit and Labour's policy became, as you just said, uh, to sort of uh, potentially overturn this Democratic uh, vote um, and, and change their position from two years ago. There's also the fact that many people probably saw a – certainly the, the center of the party, the right wing of the party, uh, saw uh, – saying you know an embrace of saying yes that we are going to have brexit uh, as a kind of capitulation to the right and a capitulation to uh, what xenophobia and, and all the other noxious things that uh, that the right wing uh, that the tories have brought uh, through the brexit discussion and then there's just a general sense of like wishy-washiness that this party is all over the place on what they're standing for on this issue are all those things accurate yeah, I mean, I think the the very fact of changing the position was probably the the very worst aspect of it, because it just it sort of crystallised existing uh, sort of doubts about Corbyn's leadership, the impression that he was weak, and indeed undermined one of his very strongest points, which was that you know even if people disagreed with him, um, I think at first his one of the greatest strengths of his leadership was precisely the idea that he was intransigent and principled. Uh, and then the line the party adopted over basically winter 2018, uh, 2019 was basically just fence sitting and opportunistic. So I think at a certain level, Corbyn himself, um, not necessarily like a committed lexiteer in the sense of seeing Brexit as a real opportunity but at least he wanted to kind of heal divides, bring the nation together, this kind of stuff. Um, but it just came to be seen as as basically saying whatever people wanted to hear, depending on who he was talking to. In fact, you know, the Labour Party did lose over a million votes to other Remain parties as well on uh, Thursday. Um, you know, it's not just that we lost Leave voters at all. Uh, in fact, a lot of the Leave voters, in fact, sorry, most of the Leave voters who Labour lost, uh, you know, d- didn't vote rather than voting uh, Tory or Brexit. Um, but I think I, I think the problem also is that the party had a kind of responsibility to acknowledge the democratic result, notwithstanding the fact that I mean Brexit was a project driven by the right. In the 2016 referendum, the the like Lexit or kind of economic case against the EU was basically invisible. And just for our listeners who aren't following all of these debates blow by blow, can you very quickly make that case? What is the what is the case for left Lexit, the left wing exit? You know, it's it's not just the right wing that is uh, skeptical of the EU. There's obviously a long tradition on the left of that as well. So, can you just quickly explain that? Uh, absolutely. I mean, the, the European Union uh, founded with the Maastricht Treaty in uh, 1992, uh, basically it constitutionally entrenches, um, uh, for example, rules against state aid of of businesses. Also things like, um, for example, 
um, rail nationalization. It's like you can't nationalize something without having a tender, uh, tendering process, also including private applicants. Um, and basically, the, the the constitution of the European Union as a liberal trading area, which bans um, state economic intervention in various ways, um, means that it has historically on the left been seen both as a instrument of American foreign policy, as a kind of anti-Soviet bloc in Europe, uh, and also as a, as a so-called bosses club. So there's a long tradition of um, um, anti-European integration in the Labour Party and the left. In fact, the split in uh, 1981 when the Social Democrats split from Labour was on the precisely these grounds. Uh, people like Tony Benn, for example, uh, also criticised the European project on its specifically anti-democratic grounds. He said, well, you know, you can elect me as an MP for four years, but I have no right to give away my powers to like supranational institutions. Also, of course, the European Union's handling of the crisis over the last, uh, say, five, ten years, um, and the Greek situation and so on, certainly added to its lack of legitimacy on the left. Of course, it could also be said, um, indeed, I myself would say that um, you know Brit- Britain is like the last country you would choose to lead a left-wing exit from the European Union. Not least as it's the state which has probably done most to push its uh, free marketeer ideas. Uh, it has numerous opt-outs from the European Union's social rights, uh, and of course, you know, the UK isn't part of the euro, which is the most fundamental aspect of its kind of economic. Uh, so ne- neoliberal economic um, structures. So given everything that you just said, um, what is the argument post-election looking like in the UK right now? I mean, are, are people coming around to this who were previously, uh, you know, labor remainers uh, or are they doubling down on their stance? And then also what happens to this, the left case for, for Brexit uh, now that, there's this resounding victory for the Tories. Well, I mean, I think the the, the problem is, is that the people who were always opposed to Corbyn uh, in the in the Labour Party, uh, whether you want to call them on the left, you know, the, the sort of centrists and liberals who are at the heart of the second referendum campaign, their, their argument is like Brexit is a disaster and Johnson is a liar. So obviously, the reason why we failed must be that Jeremy Corbyn is a terrible leader and that no one wants left wing economic policies. And, you know, there have been surveys asking people why they didn't vote Labour. And the number one reason is like Corbyn's poor leadership. But obviously, if you even begin to unpack that, it's obvious that that, that can't be detached from the, the, the issues which he had to deal with, of which Brexit was clearly the most important. The biggest problem in the debate is that looking at the kind of areas we lost, which are mainly in fact, almost exclusively leave voting areas in Northern England. The, the debate that's followed has, has tended to be around like whether it's worth holding on to those areas, even at the expense of losing urban centres and remain voters. Uh, and there's a kind of, you know, because of course people have reacted talking about ideas like labour heartlands, traditional labour areas, this kind of stuff. You have a, oh, I think it's a very false polarisation between either we keep what basically white and older working class voters from, uh, you know, former mining towns, or do we aim to represent young working class people in London? I think that's just like a really false 
uh, dichotomy, not least because, um, in fact, a lot of the you know, northern, non-London areas are, in fact, quite multicultural themselves. I mean, the fact is that, as you know, Ian Lavery, uh, MP, has, has quite rightly pointed out, like, nowhere in Britain are most people obsessed with the idea of rerunning the referendum. Just because people voted Remain doesn't mean that they are um, want to have the referendum again. Just because people voted Leave doesn't mean they're obsessed with racism and, and you know, so with migration. So, I mean, I think the success in 2017 of Labour, you know, we didn't win the election, but we came pretty close. Like, the success was basically on uniting working-class people precisely by saying, we'll uphold the result, but we'll defend migrants and we'll defend everyone's uh, public services, working standards and so on. And by being drawn into a debate about whether or not we'd carry out the referendum, we were bound to lose that focus and basically allow Johnson to present his deal as the only Brexit going. And that's what's particularly heartbreaking is that his deal is worse even than Theresa May's. It, you know, it drops even the token... Uh, defend, you know, take token maintenance of minimum standards on workers' rights, environmental standards, and so on. But because we didn't have our own alternative Brexit deal, we had like no standing with which to criticise his. And during the campaign, we we basically didn't manage to make do any scrutiny of his of his deal. It's funny how much of this will sound very familiar to American listeners uh, who, uh, you know, there's similar debates going on after 2016 about. Trump and and you know reaching out to the the Heartland voters uh, who voted for Trump and all, and all the rest of it. it it sounds very familiar. Paul Mason had a piece in the New Statesman the other day. Corbynism is over. Labor's next leader must unite the center and the left. Uh, and in the U.S., there's certainly pundits who are making that case about that you know this is a, a, a demonstration that. Uh, genuine left-wing policies uh, won't, you know, didn't win in the UK and thus won't win in the US. It's, it's, you know, it's an argument against voting for Bernie Sanders basically in 2020. Can you just spell this out? Uh, this, the, the extent to which uh, this was or was not a, a victory for uh, the center and a, and a resounding defeat of the left for the Labour Party? Well, let's be honest. On its own, this result cannot be taken as a vindication of the left. Like, you could say, comparing this result to 2017, okay, so clearly something went wrong since then. In 2017, we got 13 million votes, this time barely 10 million. So something clearly went wrong in between. But, I mean, I think at the same time, uh, if you look at the kind of areas we lost, then it's kind of daft to imagine that, uh, you know, basically mainly Northern and Midlands heavy leave voting historic labor areas if they're turning tory the reason was not because of like the imaginary like centrist swing voter choosing johnson over corbyn i mean if you look at the data for the you know turnout where the votes went it was basically working class leave labor voters turning to the tories or not voting so the, the debate didn't take place on the grounds of um you know, the, the center or fiscal responsibility. Basically, they were choosing between two quite radical alternative projects, whether Johnson's or, or Corbyn's. The Liberal Democrats, um, who constantly insist 
that people are crying out for this like mythical alternative in the center you know they lost one mp their their leader uh, lost her own seat uh, all of the mps who'd left the labor and tory parties to form a centrist alternative they every single one of them lost their seats almost all of them also on derisory votes you know less than five percent mason is saying we need to unite the center and left and this is basically the project of the remainers for the last two years you know Johnson united the Leave vote, whereas we failed to unite the Remain vote. Um, so I think there's two problems with that. The first is even at the level of electoral opportunism, I think it's just impossible. Like the Tory Remainers and the um, the Liberal Democrats, you know, they're not they're not kind of just waiting to be enticed by the Labour Party. They're people with a very different economic philosophy uh, and people with very different. Um, kind of interest to to the kind of working class people um, Labour seeks to represent. And I think it would be a profound error to try and replace um, working class Leave voters with with kind of centrists in, in wealthier seats. Um, at the same time, I mean, I just don't think that, you know, we have a, a, a leadership election coming up and Mason is, is basically, and people like him are basically pushing for someone like Keir Starmer, who was a very pro-Remain, uh, soft left, um, shadow Brexit secretary for someone like him to be the leader I think there's just no chance that he will connect with working class voters or make any impact in the kind of seats we lost so I want to get to the leadership question in a second but uh, just to I think in particular for an American audience it seems like my read of this and, and based in part on what you just said is that uh, there are pundits who want to take this election as a sort of repudiation of leftist economic policies. But the truth is the leftist economic policies that labor ran on in this election were and are very popular, but those policies were not what this election was essentially about. The election was essentially about Brexit and labor's, uh, you know, all over the place stance on Brexit is what ultimately doomed it in this election. You and you you can't honestly say that those left wing economic policies are what doomed it. No, I mean, firstly, if we look at the polling for those individual policies, things like um, uh, you know investment in the NHS, uh, things like uh, free broadband, things like nationalised rail, uh, things like the green industrial revolution. Uh, all of those as individual policies were massively popular. Um, I think it is true that the manifesto as a whole wasn't necessarily as as strong as the sum of its parts in the sense that I think some of, I think particularly the green, the green industrial revolution, what you would call the green new deal, um, I think didn't really cut through. I think it, the problem is, is, is the kind of, it's almost as if like the scope of the plan and its lack of definition as a series of local policies almost sort of fed into a narrative that the climate issue is like a big horizon for the future. You know, it's like something that really needs action, but not necessarily like now. So, I, I, you know, I think, you know, certainly where we were campaigning, we had no like local application of what that policy would mean. I think James Meadway has pointed this out, like basically like it, you need to be able to say like, okay, we're going to create jobs which will be in some environmentally friendly industry or which are themselves, you know, something like flood defenses or insulating homes or whatever. 
like that needs to be of immediate material interest of people basically um and also i think you know like even i mean what one of the interesting things about the campaign as well is that you know this might sound like a bit like grasping for a silver lining but like i think the overall effect of corbynism has been to push the tories into much less sort of nakedly uh, pro privatization or like pro austerity policies i mean like even boris johnson in this election promised we're going to have 50,000 extra nurses uh, however false that figure was you know they said they're going to build more hospitals um says you know for example johnson himself said that um once we'd left the european union the state would be able to bail out uh, businesses at risk of uh, redundancy so i mean those weren't exactly at the center of the tory campaign and the promises made were quite were more than flimsy if you looked into them but it, my point is like on economic issues even johnson felt compelled to adopt a sort of tax and spend agenda in a way which wasn't true of the the tories of the kind of cameron osborne era Partly, of course, that's just an effect of material reality, which is that the austerity policies, uh, apart from securing some upward redistribution of wealth, they haven't really worked. So already in 2017, the Tories had to sort of change, change course. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I think, I think though that there's a certain kind of narrative coming even from some of the right of the party, of the Labour Party, like uh, people like Stephen Kinnock or, or Lisa Nandy, which is kind of like saying, well, our economic policies were good, but the leadership was terrible. Uh, I, I think the problem with that is basically it kind of discounts the extent to which Corbyn was personally vilified by the media precisely because they didn't want to confront him on policy terms. So it's kind of hard to imagine that we would indeed have a leader who'd be able to promote any kind of radical change who would not be mercilessly smeared on other grounds in order to make him look ridiculous and unelectable. You mentioned earlier, you know, that Corbyn is going to step down and there will be new leadership in the party. Uh, briefly, what has the, uh, you know, who, who's emerged to vie for that position? Are we uh, going to be in store for, you know, revival of Blairism uh, or are, are people in the party going to manage to fight for and, and win uh, this this new, you know, Corbyn style uh, left-wing uh, politics within the party? I think it's very unlikely that anything approaching Blairism will come back into vogue anytime soon. It should be remembered, of course, that you know, even the leader before Corbyn, uh, Ed Miliband, and before him, Gordon Brown, they tried to distance themselves somewhat from Blairism in the sense of like an obsession with like business aspiration and so on at the same time um i think the risk is that we will uh, or you know some people will try and draw the the wrong lesson from the whole issue of, of brexit and corbyn's leadership to basically say that we were not uh, strong enough on on basically on on, th- on issues like crime and, and particularly immigration so you have some people um on the right of the party who are basically saying, although we were right to campaign to overturn the referendum, now what we should be doing is taking a harsher line on immigration. In in terms of the the sort of field of candidates, um, the one who represents continuity, or the most continuity with Corbynism, 
and the changes of the last few years in the party is uh, Rebecca Long-Bailey, uh, who's the Shadow Minister for Business and Energy. Um, and, you know, she, she's been a Corbyn supporter. She's someone who criticised the change of line on Brexit. Uh, she's a, a socialist. She's like a, a northern working-class voice. She's from Salford, which is in Manchester. Uh, and she's going to run together with uh, Angela Rayner as her deputy. So that's definitely the, the most like left-wing and explicitly socialist candidate and probably very much among the front runners and obviously it's too early to say exactly what's going to happen with all of this but at this point how do you feel about her chances um well she's she's probably the the i'd say she's the most likely individual to have put their hat into the ring but i'm not certain i'd say that it's probable that she will um part of the issue i suppose is is how far she intends to be seen as a continuity candidate and whether Corbyn's explicit endorsement is necessary in order to like shepherd Labour members towards her. Uh, because I, I think particularly because the things which are good about her are, you know, she, she really is a socialist, but if, you know, if her campaign angles more on the fact that she's like a Northern working class woman, uh, then, you know, there'll be other candidates, for example, Lisa Nandy. Uh, so Lisa Nandy was, um, the the uh, she ran uh, Owen Smith's campaign when he tried to unseat Corbyn in 2016. Uh, but you know she's an MP from a from a from Wigan, like a northwest England uh, seat, sort of working class woman. Um, and uh, I think she could be quite dangerous in the sense that she, she she would basically try and push the message that you know she's already saying we need to reconnect with working class voters but she means that in a very kind of identitarian way and she'd probably mark quite a shift to the right in the party at the same time there are also more kind of liberal remain type candidates uh, Keir Starmer I mentioned earlier he's he's certainly seen as a, a strong pro remain voice um and he'll be a candidate for the right of the party and so too Clive Lewis uh, Clive Lewis is kind of is um somewhat um on the left of the party a remainer uh, linked to, you know, like keenly supported by Yanis Varoufakis, who even came to campaign for him uh, in the election in 2017. Uh, although I don't think he has he has much chance. I, I would I would um, expect that the main candidates will be uh, Long Bailey, uh, Starmer, and uh, Nandy. Uh, another probably the hardest right candidate is uh, Jess Phillips, uh, who's um, much more of a probably the closest thing to a Blairite. She's an MP from uh, Yardley in Birmingham uh, who has a very strong media presence, a very consistent, outspoken critic of Corbyn. I think she's very likely to run uh, and I think she's very likely to be uh, humiliated and crushed, uh, which will be good to see the right uh, drawn into combat and defeated in that way. So obviously, even though Corbyn and Labour were defeated very handily in this election, Coming out of this election, there is a, a huge new grassroots infrastructure in the party, huge enthusiasm by young people throughout the United Kingdom for this kind of left-wing alternative. Uh, so can you talk about what this new kind of activist infrastructure in the party has looked like and maybe where it'll go in the future? I think um, in the 20. 20- 17 and even more so in the 2019 election campaigns we saw an amazing participation by people um 
going outside of their own constituencies, basically mainly young people, um, to go and campaign in marginals, knocking door to door, literally tens of thousands of people doing that. If, uh, say, three to 400,000 people joined the party just to vote for Corbyn, really the election campaigns have been the moment when we've seen a real um, activism, where we've seen at least a, a, a considerable minority of those people actually get involved um, in in actual campaigning work, outward-facing mass campaigning work. Um, probably less that's been expressed at the level of changing the structures of the party. I don't think that Corbyn's leadership has really done very much to democratise the party, although there are certainly a layer of new and, ba- and very young activists who've, who've taken up roles, and, that, and that's the most positive we've, thing we've seen these last few years. Um, I think also, you know, even though everyone's going to be very disappointed and angry about this result, um, the kind of solidarity that those activists have built, that people have, the excitement and enthusiasm people have had getting involved, uh, is something that will really change Labour. I mean, if you look at previous generations of left-wing activism, stuff like the student movement of the 1960s, or or the anti-globalisation and anti-war movements of the early 2000s, this is at least as significant in determining what people's expectations are of what they can achieve and what kind of style of political action they're going to focus on. I mean, I think really the argument is pretty much settled on the radical left that you know it is worth trying to change the Labour Party to make it our own to try and win elections. Um, so I think even though that this is a, a, a bad defeat... Um, that those people's politicisation is going to have a long-term effect. At the same time, you know, I mean, frankly, most of the people who are detractors of Corbynism and are sort of saying, I told you so off the result, are people who basically either abstained from any involvement in the in the party or who've left entirely. Um, and I think, you know, although there were very lo- loud voice on Twitter, the various kind of cent- centrists and sort of remain obsessives, um, a, a very little represented among the activist base of the party and probably won't have as much effect as they think in determining the, the, the next leader. Lastly, what do you think is on the uh, immediate and medium-term horizon in British politics? I mean, this was a, a seemingly, to me, a, a fairly resounding uh, victory for the Tories and obviously they campaigned on getting Brexit done. The thing that was... That, that was starting to be discussed in the last days of the of the can uh, the campaign especially was about whether or not the NHS is going to be privatized and certainly people are wondering if this victory is going to spell an increase in xenophobic attacks on immigrants and uh, all kinds of other bad things i mean what what is on the horizon in the UK well i mean i think there's no doubting that this result has emboldened all of the worst and most reactionary forces in British society and things like you know anecdotally you've heard a lot of like post-election attacks on labor activists on uh, ethnic minority people um, and certainly you know the Tories are already saying that um, you know something they said before the election but they've got going right ahead with that they're planning to ban uh, all-out strikes on the railways and that they're planning to redraw the constituency boundaries in their own favour. Um, so, you know, I think this is a, a horrible and dangerous moment and we sh- can't deny that we have suffered a terrible defeat, which prepares the grounds for even worse ones. Um, you know, I mean, it's not really a moment to be 
um, greatly optimistic. I mean, I think also one thing I'll say is that, you know, in a lot of European countries, we've seen new parties of the radical right emerge that have taken over and exploited, you know, they've exploited the death of the traditional labor movement in working class areas, and they've rallied working class people on a new and identitarian basis. I think what's really terrible in this election is that the Tories, you know, it's not it's not even a new party, it's the main party of the ruling class, which has eaten into and is exploited uh, the same thing in, in parts of Northern England. And I'm not even sure that this is going to be the the end of that process because you know once once our kind of residual power built on you know tradition on old institutions so once that is broken up it can be very hard to win back um so i think we should be very worried that um we're we're you know about whether we're able to win back such areas and i think any kind of politics which seeks to embrace that change which seeks basically to replace um, working class areas with new um, more middle class and liberal voters I I think is really disastrous and the biggest uh, risk we face because in so many you know the Labour Party suffered a terrible defeat at least we still have a third of the voters there's plenty of countries in Europe where the left has far less than that and is still sinking Um, so I think um, although we haven't been sort of you know, this isn't the end of the the Labour Party by any means, um, but I think the the choices we make in the next few years will decide whether we're able to recover, uh, or whether we'll follow the same uh, steps as parties like the French and German Socialists. Well, that's pretty bleak stuff, David. <laughs> uh, it, just in order to not end on a total note of depression, I'm going to read the last paragraph of the article that you wrote on the night of the election, called "I'm Crying, You're Crying, But Our Day Will Come." You said, there's no dressing up the result. Appealing to a spirit of resistance seems a little trite when we've just suffered such a defeat. The fight, even to keep things the same, will be much harder. But by way of consolation, at least now, we have more comrades to cry with, more comrades whose pain is our own, and more comrades who will win some bright future day. And I guess that hope is what we're going to have to... uh, they're going to use that as fuel for the coming years, which will probably be be, be pretty tough. But at, at least we have, as you said, a, a new group of, of comrades who, honestly, I, I, I trust more to uh, constitute an effective resistance to the worst of what Boris Johnson will bring uh, than the uh, the centrists in, in the Labour Party. So here's hoping for that. Yes, I, I think um, you know, there's tens of thousands of people who were out campaigning the last few weeks in the very dark cold wet conditions and you know even though it's a terrible blow we've suffered i think there's absolutely the backbone of of a future um rebuilding of of the labor movement the labor party um and you know frankly i think um you know a lot of the people who are rushing to pass judgment on labor's failure are people who didn't participate who didn't even support us in the election and who are now saying that we got everything wrong um so i think uh, even a lot of the people who are young and inexperienced uh, but have some real experience of supporting us actively um basically offer a lot more hope and we have a lot more to learn from them david thank you so much turn me on You can listen to other episodes of The Vast Majority as well as our other Jacobin podcasts 
at Jackman Radio on iTunes, Stitcher, and Spotify. Please do rate and review us as that really makes a difference in people finding us. And we don't ask you for any money on this show, but it's definitely not free. So please subscribe to Jacobin at jacobinmag.com slash subscribe. Buy Jacobin swag at our online store, subscribe to our journal Catalyst, or do whatever else that involves giving us money. Please and thank you.